0: Every one of these episodes is packed, full of timeless ideas you could apply to your own life. In this conversation, I speak to Kimishan Nadu, the CTO at BX and former co founder and CTO at Unibuddy, as we explore stress, health, meditation, stoic beliefs, and the philosophies that guide Kimishan's working life. When did you first realize you were in a state of flow?
1: I I would say I first realized it when I started to learn how to code. So that was the first thing I did. um, And this was around 13 years old, but it was the first activity from all the different things you do in school, right? Like, you know, learning maths or or painting or um, any other subject. But, when I started learning how to code, I could just get lost in it and get absorbed in it. And, you know, I'd forget to eat, um, I'd forget to, you know, I'd forget the time of the day, um, because the hours would just go by. And I think that kind of absorption, and just wanting to do it for the sake of doing it, because I, I wasn't necessarily building something useful, when you're learning how to code, um, or even something that was going to be used by anyone, but it was just really enjoying the process of, of, of building something. And that's how I knew that I'd found, I'd found the type of work that I really enjoyed and that I was intrinsically motivated by. And I think it took, it, it took a long time to get there, even though I was relatively young when I, when I started to do it, but it took a long time to realize that this is the thing that's, that's giving me this maximum flow. Um, because I, I thought that maybe there will be lots of other things that I could get it from. But i found, you know, since then that there's not too many things that I get I, I get that from, if not anything else.
0: It almost sounds like too good to be true. So, oh, wow, <laughs> I get to, like, play and build these things that don't actually matter, but yet this is what I am meant to do? This, this is my state of flow?
1: Yeah, it does. It does, and, and I think that's why... I would say a lot of engineers and a lot of people that, um, you know, enjoy coding and, and, and building things, they they probably didn't get into it because they wanted to to make money or work for a company um, that builds software. But they were really tinkering around. They were really absorbed by the actual process of, of, of learning how to build things uh, or learning how to just get your code to work. Um and then found out that they really liked it. And then after that, it's it's really a question of how can I use this to provide value um, to the world?
0: Almost sounds like the opposite too, because I think when you think about applying your skills as a, in a job, you think about the type of kind of impact or contribution that you would, necess- you, would, you would make. But in a way, what you're saying there is like, actually, I didn't even think about that at all. I just did what, I felt was natural or I was kind of inclined to do.
1: Yes, exactly. And, and I would say this perhaps goes against some of, you know, your, your trains of thoughts from people like Simon Sinek who are like start with why, um, or, you know, even, you know, like one of my favorite books, um, Man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl, where it's, you know, if you, if you have a big enough why you can get through any how, um, and I totally agree with those things, but I think when you're starting off, it's, it's a really big question to, to ask yourself, what do I want to work on that will give me a purpose? Or what is the problem I want to solve? Because you're often quite young when you're, when you're asking this question or trying to figure out um, what you should do as a career. Um, and you know, in the bigger picture, is it a good question to ask? Like, what is my purpose? Or what is the meaning of, of, of the work I'm doing because it, in the bigger picture, I kind of always go back to thinking that we're slightly um, you know more advanced primates that are living on this rock, um, going around a relatively small star that we call our sun in what's the backwaters of the universe. And in in five billion years time, the sun's gonna collapse on itself and everything that we know and every single person um, that ever lived or anything they've done won't exist anymore, um, and human life won't exist. So, it it sounds a bit nihilistic, but I think it's a very confused, confusing se- question to to ask when you're when you're 18 years old or even in your 20s. What is the meaning of what I'm doing, or what is the purpose of my work? And that's why I think a better question is to is to pose to yourself, what do I really enjoy doing for the sake of it? Um, what what work do I just intrinsically like to do, and I like the process of learning and getting better at, regardless of what I'm able to 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 actually achieve, um, or whether I can actually build something that's that that that's impactful from it um so so and that's a question i think i started with now looking back i didn't i didn't deliberately do it back then but now when i look back i think when i was young, i just tried a lot of things until i found something that i felt flow and i felt that i was intrinsically motivated to do um just for the sake of it
0: the victor frankel example is a great one because he he almost had like no choice if you kind of look at his circumstances i think you 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 understand why what is it like logotherapy or the, the 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 why that meaning is so important to him or you know why he has you know the the choice to give that person bread or it's like it it, it it's for whatever reason he he was in a situation where there was no choice and the thing that was most poignant to him in that moment was was meaning. And and his why, because he was hardly in a place where he could go and find his state of flow in a concentration camp. So like are completely understandable. But if we don't, I guess if we're not um, exposed to those harsh realities, then it's hard to have that justification for that deep why that can
1: somehow center our lives. yeah. It's a great point. So he was, he was, you know, he found himself in a concentration camp and it's basically he had to figure out how to deal with suffering um, because his default state was suffering. And that's why it was so important to find meaning so that he could get through the suffering. And I would say, yes, in in the modern world, many people are able to have more choice um, and they may not be in a state of suffering. Although I do think practical concerns and practical limitations of what we can do um, stops us from doing our best work. Um, So, for example, for myself, I actually didn't go straight into into software engineering as a career, even though I'd learned how to code at a young age. But at the time, um, this was before Facebook, um, you know, kind of early 2000s, um, people were I grew up in south africa so i learned how to code but there wasn't too many companies hiring software engineers so people were like oh you shouldn't do this because you aren't going to make any money or you wouldn't be able to get a job from it um and you should do something more traditional like um you know um the kind of tangible engineering like civil engineering or chemical engineering and i ended up studying electrical engineering uh electrical and computer engineering because of this so slightly more practical (laughs) <laughs> yeah, um, slightly more practical. Um, but people told me, yeah, you wouldn't get a job by learning how to code because software engineering wasn't really a big thing, um, especially in in South Africa, um, which is um, you know it was very very nascent at the at the time, and that actually made me figure. I would say I went a bit of a roundabout way to where I am today. So I did electrical engineering. I worked for a couple of years in industry. And then I realized I didn't feel like I was I was in flow. I wasn't intrinsically motivated by the type of work involved in electrical engineering and working with hardware um, or power systems. And I wanted to get back to software and, and coding. And that's where I, this was seven years ago when, when, when I quit my, when I quit my job and I moved to London to, to study a master's in computer science. Um, But, but I definitely didn't go on a straight path um, to it. And, 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 or I I wasn't able to do my best work. I feel because of practical limitations, like, you know, at the end of the day, everyone does need to pay the bills and you do need, and and you ideally want to align what you're able to do and get into flow with what's valuable in the, in the job market as well. Mm, mm.
0: as you speak it's, it almost sounds like uh, you have this, I don't know what shape it is but these multiple angles of the same question, whether it's a uh, state of flow the circumstances that uh, you you find yourself in practically or the kind of meaning that you want to try and attribute to your own life its, it's it, they sound like multiple sides of, of the same shape but it sounds like to you like, if you were to work out how to balance those things, how would you how would you go about putting, I guess, percentages on them? And like, has that changed over time?
1: It's a great question because I would definitely say it's changed um, over over the last five years, especially for me. I would say, yeah. In, in, in the beginning, it was all about finding that flow and doing work that was intrinsically motivating, and I didn't care so much about the impact. Um, However, now I'm in the stage where I really care about the impact I'm making with the skills that I've managed to build up. And I feel that's because once once you realize what you're able to do your best work in, and you develop these skills, then you want to really make the maximum impact with it. Um, but but that comes afterwards, and and I think now, I, uh, because because once you once you find that best work and once you get good at it, then you also will have more opportunities of how you can do that work and where you can do it, and how you can apply it. And then it's a harder question of you know where do you want to make an impact and where do you, you want know, to find meaning from your work, and that's the kind of questions that that has been occupying me for the last couple of years a lot more whereas i didn't think about this in in my 20s i was i was really interested in becoming a great software engineer and being intrinsically motivated about the craft of actually building things
0: the meaning part it makes so much sense to have that to kind of sort out the practical and the flow part and then the meaning part later because you can only impart some kind of uh gift on the world if you have that gift in the first place so figuring it out first makes a lot of sense but the thing I, I I think a lot of people struggle with is knowing like what comes first flow or the practical necessity of the things around you like that's the real challenge because how, how do I, I, I really want to find that state of flow, I want to find that state of play I want to do something that I feel it's kind of naturally I mean naturally inclined to do but at the same time you're surrounded by these practical necessities and you you get stuck with this chicken and egg problem
1: Yes, and, and I would say most people haven't found the the thing that they're really in flow with and and they're intrinsically motivated motivated by if, if I think about the friends that I speak to um, and engaging with people um, that are you know in a similar stage of career to me um, and and yes, the practical limitations do get in the way, um, but what I found and in a sense what I did was I did the practical thing first. And then I continue to I continue to explore and continue to experiment. So I think maybe you're you're doing a certain type of work um, or you're doing a job that pays really well, but you realize this is not the work that you're intrinsically motivated to do. Um, you you should then you know start to explore other types of work in parallel. Um, you know whether it's doing it as a hobby, whether it's doing a personal project. Um, you know, or working a bit on, on weekends. So, so while I was working electrical engineering, I was still kind of coding on weekends or certain evenings. Um, and that's when I realized that, hey, this is the work that I'm really enjoying, and not my not my kind of 9 to 5. Um, and I think that's a good way to actually first. The first hard part is discovering what is the thing that 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 gets you into flow. Um, and you can do that in parallel to to your current job while you, while you have those practical limitations. And then once you find it, I would say it's a question of, okay, how, how can you transition from what you're currently doing to, to that, to that type of work that, you know, that you're going to produce your best work. Um, and you can usually find a way, Uh, for me, it was going back to school. And it, it was, it, it was um, you know, starting a master's in what I wanted and then getting into uh, in, into, into the tech startup industry to, through that. Um, but depending on, on the type of transition you're trying to make, there will be other steps that you have to figure out. Um, but but I, I would say the first part is figuring out what that is. A lot of people haven't figured it out. And you do need to be able to to create some time and space to experiment outside of your day-to-day job to find that if you haven't found it yet
0: guess we also want to somehow you said earlier like it was the the way that you described being on a rock uh and the circling around a small star was kind of nihilistic and uh there's definitely a part of it where i guess like we we don't we think oh god like i almost feel selfish to like just play around for the sake of myself to see what i like like because if i think people just want to skip to doing their best work and if your best work is this kind of meeting place between the unique gifts that you have in society it's very hard to find those two at the same time but it's kind of tempting to just go for them both at
1: once yeah it's a tough one um i think I, i think trying to 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 find the reason why i prefer to start with just finding the thing that's that's really interesting to you is i feel it's more sustainable in 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 the long run um i think there is a lot of data around that you know people that are really motivated by flow and intrinsically motivated um are able to also sustain this over a long career and really have fulfilling careers um you know over decades Whereas you you might be you might find yourself you're switching between industries and between jobs a lot because you're doing it just because of the practical reasons. Um, so I, I would say yes, it can as you say it can be you can feel pressured like hey I just want to get to this quickly, but in the long run it's better to to spend more time and invest that time in experimenting and finding that thing that you're intrinsically motivated by because it will it, it 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 will have returns over a longer period of time um and, and you, you kind of get that exponential reward over a long career that's really satisfying
0: it sounds like something's something's really changed and over the last couple of years you've taken that gift and wanted to apply it more deeply in a in a way that has more meaning do do you know what's underneath that shift? I mean, the deepest question I could possibly ask here is, why are you searching for that meaning now?
1: It's a great question, and I haven't really thought about why the shift happened. Um, instead, I've started to think about where, where I can find the <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I would say if I had to, you know, think about why the shift happened, I would say at some point you get to a level where you think you're at least competent at your craft and it starts to become very automatic so it's a kind of unconscious um competence where you know you're able to do it quite naturally um after after many years of practice and then it almost frees up your cognitive cognitive load because in the beginning, your cognitive load is so full of just trying to become good at something that you're not really thinking about anything else. Um, and I feel what happened to me is the cognitive load just dropped because it became natural and more automatic. And then I started to think, I started to use the cognitive load to actually think about what is the impact of my work? Um, or how can I find, find more meaning from this? Um, and you start to really pay more attention to that. Um, So if I had to guess, I would just say, I was so distracted by, you know, aiming to become good at what I was doing, but I didn't think too much about why I was doing it. Whereas now I have that mental space to do that. Um, and it's taking more steps as you go up. Yeah. And it starts to take more of a center stage in your, in your head. Uh, I feel at a certain point, um, because that's what you're really thinking about and, um, and and it's it's a more it's a, it it becomes a more interesting challenge almost. Let me find meaning. Um, whereas early on, the challenge is let me get really good at my craft.
0: Where did you start, or did it happen
1: by accident? In in terms of the shift from the yeah. craft to the meaning, I, I would say this is where Viktor Frankl's you know philosophy comes in in terms of. If you have a strong enough why, you can get through it anyhow. Um, because as as I was building Unibody and as it became bigger and bigger, um, you 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 realize that building a, and scaling a company is is all about dealing with a roller coaster of a ride. Um, you're gonna have you know the highs, but there's also a lot of lows and there's a lot of suffering, and you need to you need to feel that. You, you have a strong enough why to be able to get through those lows and you're constantly putting up fires in a startup, you would know um, as, a, as, as, as someone that's, that's, that's grown a company as well, is that you're constantly putting up fires and you're constantly dealing with um, that pressure. So I would say that's when I started to really think about it because I, I really needed to, to, to feel that I had that strong enough why to get through the last seven years. Otherwise I would quit after two years. Um, And, and I think that's why the the next company that I eventually start, I I would really, you know, want to make sure that it's a strong enough why, and I could be motivated to, to get through that rollercoaster or to stay on that treadmill in a way for, you know, five years plus.
0: I hadn't thought about how, the suffering that you go through when you do something difficult deepens the the why and therefore gives you more uh, meaning and gets you closer to your best work and yeah, that's a, an amazing insight because it's the opposite it just goes completely against our conventional wisdom you would think that doing your best work was good which tend to feel positive but in a a sense like it's almost like you can't do your best work without some form of suffering yes which is kind of i don't know is
1: that sad or is that good (laughs) i would i would say it depends on your outlook of suffering and what i've learned is to is, is to try to embrace it because, because again, if you have that strong enough why, and you know why you're having to do it, then it's it's the only certainty I would say. Um, you know, anything you do, there's going to be some tough times, and there's going to be some points um, where you're really going to have to, um, you know, go through some difficulty. And if it is the only certainty in life, in work, and in starting a company, then why not embrace it? Trying to avoid suffering in life—it's a bit like a fish trying to avoid water, to me. And I think sometimes people—we—we we try to avoid it, and we—we we just want to be comfortable, and that leads us to actually <laughs> constantly um, feeling dissatisfied and, ironically, suffering because we try to avoid suffering. And and that's also been a shift in my mindset over the last couple of years—is actually let me try to embrace this roller coaster. Let me accept the lows along with the highs um, and, and not try to avoid it. Uh, Earlier in my career, it was all about avoiding failure, avoiding the lows, avoiding the mistakes. And later on, you realize that it's, 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 just a certainty. Um, You are going to suffer. You are going to make mistakes. Um, You are going to go through difficulty and. It's 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 how can we handle that in a way that makes it enjoyable. And and for me, that's about trying to embrace it as much as possible. Take it as part of the full experience.
0: The acceptance that you talk about there, how have you learned to accept suffering in that way? And like, practically speaking, like what happens? Like you have a shit day, you have a crap situation, like what do you practically do to accept that moment rather than let it spiral you downwards?
1: One of the trends I noticed whenever I'd I'd listened to an interview, you know, with a successful athlete or a successful entrepreneur that I started to notice was they kept talking about the reason why they were successful is because they did the things they had to do, even when they didn't feel like doing it, and that really started to to resonate with me. And I kept—I don't know whether it's like just the way the human brain works. Once you hear something, then you start to pattern match. But I kept hearing it in people in all walks of life, you know, athletes of all different sports categories. But it was this this concept of. You know, you're never going to feel amazing all the time. If you only went to work out or went to the gym when you felt good, um, you know, you wouldn't be able to do it often enough to actually achieve something. And I would say it's the same at work. If, you only, if you're only, if you only going to, you know, be able to do your best work when you're motivated and feel great and high energy, then you're not going to be consistent enough. And, and I think that's something that I link to suffering is that basically every successful person, has embraced suffering in a way that they did what they said they were gonna do, or that they had they were gonna do that that they had to do, even when they didn't feel like it. So sometimes you get up in the morning and you have a calendar from nine to five full of meetings, and you really don't feel like you have the energy to do it. But you know what? You gotta get up and do it. And there'll be another day where you feel super high energy and you love every meeting, and you're bouncing around and you can do another nine to five uh, back to back. Um, and that's great, but there's going to be days and maybe even at certain points in your life, it'll, it'll be a lot of days where you're, you're doing it even, even though you don't feel like it. And for me, I think that's where I drew the link between suffering and just to achieve something significant and to succeed, you need to be okay with embracing it and doing things when you don't feel like it or when you don't feel at your best,
0: how do you reconcile that against like a navao-ravacant way of thinking about it where it's like you're kind of you work like a lion and you should be kind of sprinting and doing everything all at once when you're feeling it when you're feeling good but then when you're like when you're over the hill you should rest and like you kind of do it in sprints it's almost like I, i i can see the logic in like in both ways of of thinking
1: yeah I, I, I love the by the way. Um, and, and that that's that's something I did think about a lot. You know, which one works better? Is it is it sprinting like a lion or aiming for this consistency and discipline over the long run? And to me, I think it depends on the type of work you're doing. And if you're working on a project basis and I think you're kind of you enjoy building things or the initial stage of building something then that sprinting and working like a lion can work really well to get a project off the ground, especially, um, or to build an MVP, um, or to achieve product to market fit. Um, And I think perhaps if you look at a company as a sequence of milestones and projects, you could look at it in that way. Um, But what I found after you reach that stage and your team's a certain size, um, I found that I needed to be consistent. Um, I needed, be able to be there week in week out i need to be able to put fires put out fires week in week out and it's pretty hard to just sprint and relax
0: (laughs) yeah like if if, if, if there's no there's you've got a if you're the one creating the structure and the structure is i'm going to work when i feel like it is is, that's going to cause
1: issues so I, i would say maybe for if you're if you're if you're creative and you're doing creative work and you're building that could work really well but for me, I started off as, as, as an engineer coding every day. Um, and then, you know, once the engineering team got to a certain start size, I wasn't doing any coding. And that's where I feel like it was less useful to use the kind of sprint philosophy. I mean, I mean sprints is exactly what engineering teams use, right? Like the whole concept of a sprint working two weeks, um, and then you kind of take stock, refresh, do a retrospective and start again. Um, so it works really well for creative work, but I'm not sure it works well for executive work.
0: And it's so hard if you have to do both
1: yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i I, to be honest i've never been able to do both i think i've either been you know it's it's or you know another phrase is 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 maker versus multiplier i've either been a maker which is having an empty calendar and just being in flow and being able to sprint and build or i've been a multiplier which is having usually a full calendar of meetings because you're managing a lot of people um, and that requires more consistency.
0: It's interesting how a lot of this feels like systems, and you're like you you, you just have to figure out how to. Uh, like you said, it's the thing that you're working on, and it's also the system that you're working within. It almost strikes me that if you had a whole group of like very professional kind of multipliers managers the whole way through, it'd be like okay but we're going to miss some of the startupness that we need in order to to get to where we need to go. But if it was all the other way, then you wouldn't have any structure. So it's almost like the system needs its check and balance in a way to give it its variety somehow. And if you understand that that's what the system needs, maybe you're able to design the system that can support your best work in a better way.
1: Yes, exactly. And, and I find sometimes there's this conflict between makers and multipliers, because multipliers sometimes forget that the makers need that flow time. And if you if you add too many meetings to the calendar, or you're too disruptive, then you're making them less productive, and they can't do their best work. Um, and on the other hand, you know, sometime makers um, don't understand how, what multipliers need, um, and that they don't have that flow time. So I, I do think it's important to, to, to understand how each person, what is their operating mode and which one works for them best. And then you can design your, your communication structures and systems in the company so that it can work for both these people. Cause as you say, you don't want to, you don't want everyone to just be multipliers cause then it will lose a startup field. Uh, but you also have a certain size. You can't have everyone just operating like makers, um, as well.
0: As people, as people's like career and their professional journey advance, often there's this reenactment of an earlier life that kind of comes to fruition. And in some ways, we're, we're kind of becoming more childlike, or we maybe pursue. Uh, the work of our parents slightly more avidly. Um, we almost kind of look to unconsciously somehow complete the circle and we end up kind of going back to things that maybe we found in our, our youth somehow. Does any of that resonate with you?
1: It's interesting. It's also something I haven't really thought about. I do find that, things that I used to enjoy doing as a kid um, or almost pastimes that I would do with a parent like I used to enjoy watching cricket with my dad Um, as I get older that's something I'm getting back to um, and starting to enjoy that more and yeah, perhaps you're right in a way that it's full circle or it's something that's nostalgic and we we enjoy that nostalgic feeling and it feels very familiar um, and it makes us feel, you know, young again, perhaps. Um, but but I, I definitely see that, yeah, kind of as I'm getting older, I'm starting to also go back to some of the things I used to do You know, with my parents or think about the kind of work that my parents used to do and try to understand that more um and perhaps um you know incorporate that into my life I, I i would say that 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 is yeah pretty accurate
0: so it's like the more that we the more time we have i guess the more time we've had with ourselves to know know ourselves and of our, and what like authentic would mean to us so i guess in a way it would make sense that the more time that you have the more you can learn about yourself it's like we're not on a journey outward like we're on a journey inward and you maybe get like to those, those deeper layers. It's almost like we kind of, is it we, we're start off as this smaller ball and then we add layers and layers and layers and layers on top of it. And maybe instead of our future being the kind of accumulation of more and more layers, it, it becomes more about stripping them, stripping them back
1: somehow. Yes, that's true. And something that also comes to mind is that when you're younger, I feel like you're trying to differentiate yourself from your parents and you're trying to find your own identity and then once you become more secure in that and you feel like you are your own self and you have your own identity then perhaps that's why we go back to you know trying to do the things that our parents did or or things that we used to do with them because now we're really secure in our own identity and we know ourselves and we have our own hobbies and preferences and we can almost go back to that without feeling like, you know, we're um, just, just merely copying them in a way.
0: I guess we're also getting closer to their age as well.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's, that's, that's true.
0: Like simple stuff.
1: <laughs> more, we're, we're more able to empathize with why they, they like certain things. Yeah. What are you optimizing for now? Right now, I'm optimizing for health. I'm I'm I am i i i have been listening to I've been listening to a lot of uh, Huberman uh, Andrew Huberman's podcast. I'm not sure if you if you've came across his and and he's fascinating. Um, he talks a lot about um he's a professor of neuroscience at Stanford, and he talks a lot about sleep, for example, and how different factors and hormones influence it. Um, he talks a lot about things like, you know, coffee, um, different, um, different foods,
0: not having it in the first 90 minutes and all that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And some kind of counterintuitive things, um, as well. So I'm, I'm really trying to optimize, um, health and especially sleep. Um, you know, the, the more and more, the more and more, um, uh, in a way productive I'm trying to be. The, the more I realize how much that's impacted by sleep, and even having slightly less quality of sleep, I can noticeably see a difference in the quality of work I can do. For example, it's interesting that
0: um you go to health because when you were talking earlier about the the way that suffering plays an important part of our our working journey, and we need to expose ourselves to uh, that suffering. I, I, when you were talking about it, I was thinking about dopamine and how dopamine. If we have a uh, a a, if we are exposed to a large amount of dopamine at once, we kind of set new limits in our own brain, that kind of tell us this is the new this is the new normal so if you're like the bungee jumper or whatever like you can get hooked on it because it's it doesn't just like fluctuate there it like sets a new limit and then your your brain like has to constantly try to go to that limit again or to get that same hit and when you're talking about suffering it's like okay well this is this those highs and lows of that roller coaster ride if your dopamine is swinging from one side to the other yes it's good that you're suffering because you're getting the chance to have that deeper why like like Viktor Frankl talks about but you're also kind of setting some new dopamine standards that are a little bit dangerous that mean that this kind of hedonic treadmill that you could potentially get on here is like nothing's ever going to be good enough because you're constantly going to be pushing out your dopamine levels further and further to the point where you're you're kind of on this endless cycle.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting point and interesting insight. I would say that regardless of where you are on the kind of, you know, if you think about a sinusoidal wave um, and how high and low those are being expanded to, um, something I'm trying to practice as well and, and I'm a big fan of is, is the concept of stoicism and how we could try to regulate our responses and emotions to regardless of where we are on that sinusoidal wave Um, and, and i think kind of embracing suffering in a way it's 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 part of it is just not reacting too much to the low um and trying to trying to accept it as 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 unemotionally as you can um along with the highs uh, or similarly with the highs, not getting too excited when, when when something's going really well and not getting too down on yourself when something's going uh, bad. So again, I, I would say perhaps those are linked. Um, how, how can we be more kind of stoic um, with dealing with the different phases that you are on that wave?
0: I just fascinating. I never thought stoicism was a way to control your dopamine levels. <laughs> but It makes a whole lot of sense. I kind of goes i guess with your acceptance and trying to be more stoic in the way that you think through those things i mean it makes it just makes yeah complete sense like don't don't think that um saying like nothing's ever as good as bad as you you or as, it, or as it first appears it's like well that saying is it's true in so many circumstances but it's also a saying that we should just embody full stop because if we did then maybe we would even that out and and not be so susceptible
1: to these swings Yes. It's interesting because dopamine's is um, an actual physical, um, you know, biological element in a way. So I suppose the question is, how much control do we actually have to control our feeling when there is a spike in dopamine? Um, and to what extent? Or is it pretty difficult to, to control our reaction to it? Um, I suppose that's a question or I don't know enough about it, but can we, can we actually, you know, not get too excited if we have a spike of dopamine? Um, can we kind of look from the outside in? it's like, Hey, I can feel this is going high, but I'm not going to react to it. Um, and kind of just observe it. Um, kind of like looking above, like when you, when you're in a dream and you know, you're dreaming, but you're kind of watching yourself in a way. Um, I, yeah, that that's something I feel like with self awareness. If you can observe your emotions, um, that can be very powerful um, because you almost start to you know look at yourself from the outside. Do you take much time
0: to meditate or be aware of the your your kind of um, like I, again I, I probably hadn't thought of meditation as a way of like saying okay, well this is just a way of trying to regulate my own my own chemical composition. Um, it almost sounds like like a, a I meditate because I what well, I want to f- feel calm and and I, I want to observe my body but I interestingly I've I have not proactively done it before to maintain those chemicals that I guess that's it's kind of the same thing in a way
1: yeah potentially i I, I would say a lot of forms of, of meditation is about awareness and creating awareness about the body and emotions and different feelings so you know i i i, I use a very simple form of med- meditation um a few times a week which is more just a focus type of meditation um or it's called japa meditation you are basically saying a a kind of mantra over and over um and i do it with beads so while holding on to while while changing one beat at a time and there's 108 beats and I just find that calms me because it forces me to focus on something very simple, which is just words and the tactile touch of a bead. Um, and, and that really calms me and clears my mind. Um, there's other types of meditation that really focus on creating more awareness about what's going on in your head and your body. And that could be really helpful with, with, with regulating your emotions and observing your emotions. Um, but I try to practice that on a on a kind of daily basis. Um, if if some if something happens uh, or an event happens, then I'm I, I'm I'm trying to train myself to pause and observe my emotions instead of reacting.
0: What's the type of meditation called? And, so, and you and you have beads
1: that you. Yes, it's called Japa, J A P A.
0: And you and you just pass one hundred. You have a that sounds like a long thing of beads. <laughs>
1: It's, it's, it's 108 beads on a string. And you basically say the same sequence of words for each bead, um, which is the mantra, and it takes about 10 minutes. Um, so you do it quite quickly. But it's, it's usually very cathartic, because you don't have time to think about too many other things while doing it, you're just very focused on the words and the beads, which for me is, is why it, I find it very useful. Um, because i i find my mind's often too active and often that can you know cause me to, to have, have trouble falling asleep and the meditation helps me just to to stop thinking about things
0: i love the way that we've we've spoken about how to find that equanimity and to calm our mind at times where we're going through suffering and it's challenging and uh we don't want to create those spikes but we want to be more stoic and 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 see through the difficulties but it's also interesting that it it could apply to times where you're if one of the things that strikes me so much about you is that you're so like curious and so um l- kind of interested in the world around you and that's not necessarily a prerequisite and it takes a real uh self-understanding and self-awareness to be um that curious or at least to know what your own inclinations are and spending time with yourself and trying to observe yourself both seems like a good way to try and regulate your emotions during times of suffering but also seems like a very good way of trying to discover your inclinations too
1: yes yes it's, it's a great way to to learn about yourself just observing your your emotions and your thoughts, and it's a great way to to start to to change the way you the way you react. So the first step that I found is for me to change how I react to something is to is to just stop and observe, and and that's why I try to do it. Um, but yes, I, I, I am usually quite a curious person, and I, I love the saying, you know, um, be interested. To be interesting, and I think I always find that when I speak to someone, if they're very curious and interested, um, that also makes them really interesting. Um, one, because people like to talk about what they're doing, and they like that someone's curious about you. But two, they usually have a lot to contribute because they've they are curious people and they're genuinely, um, you know, interested in 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 something, and it's it's not really for for a transactional purpose.
0: I have loved bit us being curious about each other um and thank you so much for walking me through how you've both navigated the early times um but being able to embrace and and grow through the difficult times
1: thank you Ben. i really enjoyed our chat as well and you made me think about a few things that i haven't thought about before so fantastic all right ben have a good evening Bye-bye. you too
0: The Best Work podcast is produced by the team at Cord. I'd love your advice on how we can make sure the Best Work podcast is having a profound impact on the way we all pursue our best work. Email me at bennettcord.co. You can also find a transcript of this conversation, insightful video content, and more at chord.co slash insights. Thanks for listening.